Ladies and gentlemen, if I might have your attention, please. Just a couple of very quick uh, housekeeping announcements. Again, remember, breakfast tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, right here. This room will be magically transformed uh, into a, a breakfast area. They have special powers in our conference department to do that. Uh, we'll start again promptly at 9 o'clock. And as someone pointed out to me, every band teachers tells their students that on time means a little bit early, so try to be there 8.55, and 9 o'clock will start exactly on time. The, the first speaker tomorrow morning is a very sensitive person, and his feelings are hurt if people are late. Uh, and then also afterwards, we're going to be uh, meeting at the uh, Finn and Porter uh, Bar at the Embassy Suites Hotel down here. There's no meeting this evening uh, for the uh, scholarship students. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker for this evening. Uh, John Tierney is a science columnist, science writer for the New York Times, which means he really spends a lot of time understanding the science and figuring it out, and then he does something magical. He writes about it in a way that I can understand, and this is really a tremendous skill. His columns are great in the New York Times. You should go and visit them. They're always lively and interesting and engaging, and he wrote a great book. I love this book. It's called Willpower, Rediscovering Humanity's Greatest Strength. I have since bought on Amazon 28 copies, individually to send to my nieces, my nephews. Uh, everyone, I think, should straighten out their lives and uh, sit up straight and uh, all that, including myself. I learned a lot from this book. I love this book. And John has just uh, finished up a great chapter for this new work that I'm working on, an edited collection on state control or self-control where he presents this material, but pulls out the libertarian implications of it, which are more subtle uh, in the book. So you're in for a real treat. John. Uh, thank you very much, Tom, uh, for those kind words, and thank you for buying those books. God. <laughs> I really, that's the greatest uh, treasure. And, th and thank you very much to Cato for inviting me here, I, um, and to all the, the great work that Cato does. It is really inspiring to be in a place that, that is just full of so many smart people doing such good work. Tom, foremost, you know. And so, um, as a libertarian, as a fellow libertarian, one of my favorite bits of social science involves the link between intelligence and political ideology. Um, various studies showed that conservatives tend to be rigid and closed-minded. And, and, and these findings are definitely true because they were done by scientists in academia who are famous, who are famously unbiased and open to a wide spectrum of ideas politically. I mean, I know some of you are in school now and are aware that there are some faculty on campus who are Democrats, but there are also many faculty members who vote with the Green Party, too. <laughs> so, now when these researchers looked at IQ, they reported with barely disguised glee that um, socially conservative Republicans have lower IQs than, than liberal Democrats. But then, they were stunned to discover that the average IQ of, of Republicans is higher than the average IQ of Democrats. And how could this be? Well, because the libertarians in the Republican Party were so much smarter than the Democrats and everyone else. So, 
<laughs> so I congratulate you all on your genius. And, and tonight I want to talk about another wonderful libertarian trait, which is self-control. Um, the connection between freedom and self-control was obvious to the great libertarians who founded our country. Uh, on July 4th, 1776, as, as his revolutionary declaration of human freedom was being adopted in Philadelphia, Thomas Jefferson took some time out for some less exalted prose. Um, in his notebook, he meticulously wrote down everything he bought that day at a shop in Philadelphia and the exact price of it, you know, like three pounds, 15 shillings for a thermometer. Now, not even the Declaration of Independence could distract him from this lifelong passion to write down everything he bought. Now, he was, his, his obsessive record keeping was a bit extreme, and there are people who have diagnosed him with um, some disorders, but his passion, his passion for self-control, for setting goals and for monitoring him, um, himself was common among his colleagues in Philadelphia. You know, ben Franklin kept this notebook where, where each week he would, he had these charts in it, and each week he would, he would chart his progress toward 13 different virtues like temperance and frugality, industry, uh, cleanliness. George Washington, as a young man, he he wrote down 110 rules of civility that, uh, that he wanted to follow, and, and a couple of them might be relevant tonight. Um, one of them was, drink not, nor talk with your mouth full. And one that, actually, I consider more important, sleep not when others speak. <laughs> now, the Founding Fathers believed in the unalienable right to liberty. But they knew it depended on personal responsibility. You know, during the Enlightenment and, and, then, and later during the Victorian era, people worried very much about the decline of religion and the decline of traditional social control of behavior by village churches, by, you know, by lords of the manor. And, and so people who believed in human freedom wanted something to replace that. And they realized that to be free from a tyrant's rule, men had to be able to rule themselves. You know, that truth seems self-evident to them. Now today it's even more evident, although it has taken social scientists, those, those liberals in academia, uh, a long time to catch up with the founding fathers. Uh, during the 20th century, as researchers studied the irrational and the unconscious forces in the brain, their faith in self-control waned. It was replaced by a faith in state control. The original progressives in the early 20th century envisioned an America that was guided by experts who would mold a new kind of society. They believed the future belonged to societies that stressed collective responsibility, not individual responsibility. Um, and social scientists were very eager to go along with this. They were basically the experts in shaping human behavior. They were sort of the new priests of this order. And they provided the rationale for prohibition, and when that progressive reform failed, they went on looking for all kinds of new ways to regulate the rest of society. Uh, the growing nanny state dictated which vices were legal, which temptations could be advertised, which medicines could be sold, which foods were permissible, which sugary beverages were allowed, nothing over 16 ounces in New York. We don't allow that up there. Now, you can see the shift in, in politics, you can see it in social science research, 
And you can also see it in popular culture, most notably, to me at least, on the self-help racks at airport bookstores. And believe me, I know what is in those self-help racks. I have read more bad self-help books than Oprah and Dr. Phil combined. Um, those books are what got me into this subject. Um, it started one evening, I was at dinner with a friend of mine, uh, Christopher Buckley, the comic novelist, and we were talking about the great subject that always comes up when serious writers get together, which is money. And we concluded that we needed more of it. <laughs> and we were so jealous of the mega sales of the self-help books that we decided to write one of our own. And it was a novel titled, God is My Broker. Uh, the subtitle is, A Monk Tycoon Reveals the Seven and a Half Laws of Spiritual and Financial Growth. <laughs> it, it tells a story of Brother Ty, an alcoholic who, who fails as a trader on Wall Street, and then manages to sober up by going uh, to a monastery in upstate New York that makes wine so bad that even he can't drink it. <laughs> So, and the monastery is going broke because of the awful wine. But Brother Ty rescues it thanks to stock tips that he thinks are coming from God. And as this new money rolls into the monastery, the monks kind of relax their vow of poverty. They, they spend a fortune renovating the monastery with the help of a very hip uh, interior designer from downtown Manhattan who comes up and when they, he looks over the place and when they ask him, what kind of look do you have in mind for the monastery? He says, well, we want it to say poverty, <laughs> but we don't want it to say cheap. And so, <laughs> so along the way, our monk discovers the seven and a half laws of financial and spiritual growth, um, such as Money is God's way of saying thanks. <laughs> and God loves the poor, but that doesn't mean you have to fly coach. <laughs> and, and there's my favorite law, as long as God knows the truth, it doesn't matter what you tell your customers. <laughs> so, now to write this parody, I went back through the history of self-help books, you know, starting with Ben Franklin. And I noticed this curious trend, you know, from Ben Franklin through the Victorian era, the books stressed, you know, hard work and perseverance. They had maxims like genius is patience. But then in the 20th century, a whole new kind of self-help book started. And they started offering quick fixes and self-esteem and this feel-good philosophy with a rhyming slogan, believe it, achieve it. Deepak Chopra offered something called the law of least effort. And I will quote it to you verbatim. Ultimately, you come to the state where you do nothing and accomplish everything. <laughs> and I guess it worked for him. But, <laughs> but to me, it seemed there had been this strange backward evolution. The old Victorian books seemed smarter than their descendants. And I didn't know what to make of this until I started writing a science column for the New York Times, and I met the social psychologist Roy Baumeister, with whom I ended up writing the book Willpower. Roy had been an early leader into the research in, into self-esteem, which showed that people who were more confident tended to be more successful in life. But then Roy realized that the researchers had it backwards, that um, 
self-esteem does not cause success, rather success causes self-esteem. Uh, winning the Nobel Prize will make you feel good about yourself, but feeling good about yourself will not get you to Stockholm. Um, if it did, Donald Trump would be there every year. <laughs> now, when Roy looked at dozens of personality traits, he discovered that only one of them predicted how well a student would do in college. It was not self-esteem. It was self-control. Self-control predicted college grades better even than IQ or SAT scores. And it predicted lots more, as researchers found, as they studied people throughout their lives. Um, I'll give you a quick summary of two decades of research. However you define success, you know, happy family, successful career, good grades in school, um, good friends, however you define it, it correlates with two things, intelligence and self-control. Now, so far, researchers haven't figured out how to increase intelligence, but they have figured out how to improve self-control. They've rediscovered the concept of willpower. Now, scientists used to dismiss willpower as this quaint Victorian metaphor, you know, the, invented by these sort of uptight Victorians who had this primitive idea that there was some kind of steam engine inside your body that powering you, um, uh, powering your ability to resist temptations. Now, it seemed quite fanciful, this idea, until Roy Baumeister, my collaborator, decided to test it one day in his lab. And he invited students, to, I mean, he asked them to skip lunch, and he told them to come to the lab later in the afternoon. He told them that it was an experiment in, in how they tasted food, which, as usual, was a lie. Social psychologists never tell the guinea pigs what the experiment's really about. Now, when the students got there, they, they were really hungry, and they would be greeted by, the, by this beautiful aroma of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. And there would be a, a bowl of them sitting right on the table. And right on the table next to it was a bowl containing raw radishes. Now, the lucky students were told they could have some cookies. The unlucky students were told they had been assigned to the radish condition. No cookies for you, but have as many radishes as you'd like. Now, to maximize the temptation, you know, the, each student was left alone in that room, but the scientists were watching through a closed window. And they could see that these poor kids were, you know, that they agonized. You know, they would go over and look at the cookies. They would sometimes pick one up and smell it. But they all managed at least to resist the temptation to eat it. Then afterwards, all the students were given puzzles to do. And the students thought that this was a test of their cleverness. But in fact, the puzzles were unsolvable. The real test was how long they would persevere. Now, the ones who'd been allowed to eat the chocolate chip cookies, they typically worked away for 20 minutes, and then they finally gave up. But the ones in the radish condition gave up after just eight minutes. Now, that's less than half the time, which is a huge difference by experimental standards. You know, they, they had successfully managed to resist the temptation of the cookies, but that effort left them with less energy to solve the puzzles. So the old Victorian metaphor was actually right. Willpower really is a form of energy, and it can be depleted. Now, this sort of depletion happens to all of us all day long. Um, by tracking people from morning through night, researchers have, have, have calculated that we typically spend between three and four hours a day resisting temptations. You know, the temptation to eat, the temptation to goof off, 
temptation to fall asleep during an after-dinner speech. Uh, remember George Washington? Um, and that's not the only way that you deplete your willpower. Um, after this cookie experiment, a young colleague in, in Roy's lab came in one day. Um, after the previous night, she and her fiancé had been compiling their bridal registry, you know, which towels, which silver, which place settings. And it left her feeling really exhausted, and it gave the researchers an idea. So they did some experiments in the lab, and they went to a shopping mall. And they found that the more decisions a shopper made, the less energy they had, the less willpower they had to work on puzzles and do other mental tasks. So making decisions depleted the same source of mental energy as resisting temptation. We call this decision fatigue. And once it sets in, your brain looks for shortcut in two very different ways. You know, one way is just to not think through the consequences of the decision. You just act impulsively, you know, sure, go ahead, tweet that photo in your underwear, what could go wrong? <laughs> and the other shortcut is, is the ultimate energy saver. You just do nothing. You duck the decision. Now that can be, you know, that solves the problem at the moment, but it can be really costly in the long run. Now, decision fatigue is, is worse now than ever because there are so many decisions we all face all day long. We're not medieval serfs who are doing one simple job all day long, the same thing our parents did. And just all day long you've got the decision, which email do I open, which text do I reply to, which phone call do I return, which website do I visit. Um, you can't deal with you know, all these decisions at once. So here's another bit of science to help keep you focused on this. It's, it's based on something called the Zagarnik effect, which is named after a psychology student at the University of Berlin named Bluma Zagarnik. One day, she and some fellow psychologists, it was a large group of them, went to a restaurant. And the waiter came, he took their order, it was a big group, he took all their orders without writing anything down, and then he delivered everything perfectly. And they were really impressed with this. So, so after lunch, they, they left the restaurant. Somebody had forgotten something and went back to the restaurant to retrieve it and saw the waiter and kind of smiled at him, hoping this guy's excellent memory would help them. And the waiter just looked back at him blankly, had no idea who the guy was. And he then explained that as soon as he delivered in order, it just vanished from his memory. Well, this got the psychologist thinking, does the brain make a... a a, a big distinction between finished and unfinished tasks. And they went back to the lab and they found that in fact this, this is true, that there's a special place in memory for unfinished tasks. And while it's there, um, the brain will keep nagging you to finish that task until it's completed. I mean, that's why, that's why when you turn off the radio in the middle of a song, that song can just keep playing in your head all day because the task is unfinished and your brain is nagging you at that. You know, that's why when there's unfinished work sitting on your, on your desk, that saps your mental energy. And it's going to keep sapping your mental energy until you either finish the task or until you use another strategy that was demonstrated in Roy Baumeister's lab. They took some students who had an upcoming exam that they were worried about, and they had them read some pages of a novel that had nothing to do with that exam. And just as predicted, they kept getting distracted by thoughts of the exam, and they didn't do that well on a comprehension test. Then another group of students came in. They also had this exam. But before they read the novel, they were instructed to make a plan for dealing with the exam, like, you know, 
set time on the calendar to go study in the library Sunday afternoon. Once they made that plan, they were able to concentrate much better on the novel and score higher on the test afterwards. They still had the exam ahead, but just making that plan had cleared their minds. Now I'm going to try and clear your minds um, by giving you some specific strategies for applying the, you know, the science of willpower. And I'm going to try to outdo Brother Ty by giving you not seven and a half, but eight strategies. Starting with strategy number one, watch for signs that your willpower is low. Know your limits. Now there's no single telltale symptom of when your willpower is low. It's not like getting winded or hitting the wall during a marathon. What actually happens is that you start to experience everything more strongly because you can't regulate your emotions as well anymore. So donuts look especially tempting. Your roommate might seem especially irritating. Remember that every, that every little act of self-control and every little decision will sap your willpower. So pick your battles. You know, don't make more than one New Year's resolution. You know, don't schedule back-to-back -back classes all day or back-to-back -back meetings. Um, in fact, you might do what the editors of the New York Times Magazine did after I turned in my, the draft of my article on decision fatigue. They, they read it and they promptly resolved no more meetings after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They just realized they recognized their limits. You can think of, of willpower as a muscle that gets fatigued with use. That's the bad news about it. But the good news is that you can also gradually strengthen that muscle over time. You can build up its stamina. And that is strategy number two, which is build your willpower. In one experiment, uh, some students were sent home with instructions for the next couple weeks to, to sit up straight. Basically, whenever they found themselves uh, slouching, they should try to sit up straight or stand up straight. Then they went back to the lab, and they had to perform a bunch of uh, tasks. And, and the researchers were a bit surprised that this worked. This was kind of supposed to be a control group. But what actually happened was they were able to do all these mental tasks and all these other tasks much better. That, and these tasks did not involve posture at all. And then other studies showed that that when students worked on one part of self-control, like controlling their spending, eventually, over time, they got better at, at other forms of self-control when it came to studying and when it came to their diet. So the research has shown that re really any repeated exercise in self-control will gradually build up your willpower. It's, it's really what the Victorians, with you know, lots of their little character-building exercises, they were onto something. That, you know, they realized that these little acts of self-control can build up your willpower over time. Now, there's also a much simpler and quicker way to build your willpower, which is strategy number three, eat. Um, I love giving this advice at dinner. You're already on the path to virtue here. Um, experiments have shown that simply drinking a glass of lemonade will strengthen and will give you a temporary boost in willpower. But the lemonade has to contain sugar. It doesn't work um, if it contains Splenda. because You need the sugar because sugar provides glucose, which is the fuel for willpower. Now, experimenters use, uh, experimenters use sugar because it gives a very quick effect in the lab, but it's a really quick up and down. And, and I don't recommend you try that at home, especially if you're in New York um, and you want to get a big soda. Um, the, um, I wish, uh, it's better to eat foods that release glucose slowly because all, all foods release it and, and eat something healthier that does it throughout the day. 
But whatever your diet, you know, don't you know make any any big decisions on an empty stomach. Um, and uh, and if you do end up in a position where you have an expense account, I, I think you should remember one of the most important scientific lessons of the past half century, which is that there is now finally a scientific justification for the expense account lunch. So. Strategy number four is to avoid the planning fallacy. You know, just about all of us routinely underestimate how long a job will take. You know, a, a, a pro this planning fallacy, as it's called, you know, means that a, a project typically takes twice as long as predicted, and, and often more. That's why many people, their to-do list for a week will have more stuff than they could possibly do in a month. And you're better off trying to, you know, keep it to one, two, or three goals for a week, and just stick to that and get and get one goal done first before you do it. Now, even when you do set realistic goals, you still have to figure out all the little steps to get to each goal, and that is strategy number five, which is to make a to-do list that's actually doable. Because you want to avoid the Zagarnik effect. You don't want things nagging at you. And you won't avoid that if you write things down on your list that you don't really know how to do. Like, if you put a vague thing like, find new apartment, that's going to keep nagging at you because you haven't really figured out how to do that. You need to write something very specific like, check Craigslist for listings or call Jennifer to ask her for advice. You need to make a specific plan, something you know precisely how to do, something that David Allen calls the next action. Um, David Allen is the author of a book, Getting Things Done, the pro, uh, the, it, which is the one modern self-help book that I recommend uh, besides my own. The, um, and what he found, he was a corporate trainer, and he found that corporate executives were just getting um, swamped because um, they would have these grand goals, but they were just absolutely overwhelmed by all the little stuff on their desk, all the emails in their inbox, all the thing, you know, all the reports they had to use. So he figured out this system for basically eliminating the Zagarnik, for making plans to deal with everything that, that crosses your desk and for keeping your inbox empty. Now, once you've cleared your mind from that, you can focus on the next strategy, which is six. Keep track the way Thomas Jefferson did. You don't maybe have to be quite as compulsive as him, but, but monitoring your progress toward a goal is just as important as setting the goal. It's essential to any kind of self-control. If you want to cut spending, keep track of it. If you want to lose weight, get on a scale every day. That's one of the few proven ways for losing weight. Strategy number seven is what I call the nothing alternative. Um, it was inspired by, by Raymond Chandler, the great novelist and screenwriter. Um, he turned out masterpieces like The Big Sleep by going into an office every day and following two simple rules. A, you don't have to write. B, you can't do anything else. And his idea was you'd eventually get bored enough that you'd have to write. Um, now, the nothing alternative to me is a perfect strategy for the internet age. Um, no matter what you're trying to do, try to set aside 90 minutes, ideally at the start of the day, to just work only on that project. No emails, no phone calls, no web surfing. And you can open the stopwatch app on your phone and just until it hits 90, don't do anything else but that. Um, this strategy works because it's, it's what researchers call a bright line rule, which is it's a rule that's easy to follow because it's very clear when you've crossed it and when you haven't. 
Um, and you can create lots of other bright line rules too, like you know, no Facebook, no Twitter before noon. Um, now, it, it does take self-control and willpower to start following those rules. But if you drop just a few and you follow them, eventually they become habits and something you start doing without conscious effort. And once something becomes a habit, you're benefiting from the final and the most important strategy of all, number eight, conserve your willpower. This strategy comes out of a study that didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. The researchers wanted to understand why some people had more self-discipline in their lives than others. And so they tracked these people um, all day long and compared them with other people. And they expected to see these really disciplined people using their strong willpower all day long to resist temptations. But when they um, added up all the data, they saw that these people actually used willpower less often than average. And they didn't know what to make of this until they realized what these people's secret was. They structured their lives to minimize temptations. You know, they stayed away from all-you-can-eat buffets. They didn't keep bowls of candy on their desks or gallons of, uh, of ice cream in the freezer. If they wanted to focus on a project, they turned off email notifications. You know, they conserved their willpower so that it was available for, for emergencies and for important decisions. And these findings, when I wrote about them, they inspired um, a couple of very different chief executives to, to make changes in their life, um, Mark Zuckerberg and Barack Obama. Um, each of them, after, after hearing about decision fatigue and what it does to your willpower, they both started wearing the same thing every morning so as not to uh, make decisions. One of them wore, um, I think it was a gray t-shirt and a black hoodie. The other one wore a dark business suit. I'm not sure which was which, but... Um, <laughs> Now, President Obama also started, he, he stopped making any decisions about what to eat. He left that to the White House chef, or maybe Michelle. But he was outsourcing decisions. He was outsourcing self-control. And you can do the same thing even if you don't have a staff like his. I mean, instead of deciding every morning whether or not to exercise, you can make an appointment to work out with a friend, so it's really not a choice. You don't have to expend any energy doing that. You can outsource self-control to, face, to Facebook groups or to apps that keep track of what you do. Uh, you can install something that, that turns your computer off from the web for a few hours a day. Um, I know that you know, these strategies, they may sound a bit Victorian on this idea of, of building character. They may sound a little tedious. But I can tell you that they really do make life easier in the long run. I, I, all my life I had a terrible problem with procrastination. I, I never turned in a college paper or a New York Times column until the absolute deadline, if then. And, but when Roy and I wrote our book on willpower, I decided to try all eight of these strategies. You know, I, I watched for signs my willpower was low and I made allowances for it. I tried slowly strengthening that willpower muscle. I didn't try dealing with big problems on an empty stomach. I set just a few goals and I kept track of my progress toward them. Um, I blocked out specific time every day to do nothing but write. And I conserve willpower by eliminating as, as many decisions and temptations as I could. Now the result, we finished the book two months ahead of time. Our editor, I think, is still not recovered from the shock of a manuscript arriving early. Um, I, I haven't either, actually. but um, now. I've been stressing here tonight a lot of the personal benefits of willpower, and, and they're quite real. 
But ultimately, self-control is about much more than self-help. Of all the findings in Roy Baumeister's lab, the most heartening to me is this, that people with strong willpower use it to help other people. They donate more to charity. They do more volunteer work. They use their strength, their inner discipline, to help other people. They take care of themselves and of their neighbors without the need for external control. You know, they don't depend on a nanny state to do the right thing. And that's why individual self-control is the ultimate alternative to state control. And if there's one thing I'm pretty sure about this audience, I think you know which alternative is better. Thank you very much. Uh, do you want me to take some questions? Sure. I'd be glad to take a few questions. Thank you. Um, so I'm a big worry ward. I mm -hmm. worry about everything. Uh -huh. um, does that have any effect upon, uh, I know it has effect on energy, but does it affect willpower negatively? Yeah, I mean, I think anything that is basically that's sapping you know, mental energy is kind of like that Zagarnik effect, that there's, if there's something that's undone and you're worrying about it. So, so I think in a sense, if there's something that worries you, if you can just make a plan to deal with it, either you know, decide you can't do anything about it or, you know, set something on your calendar and your to-do list to, to do it, something, but just fretting about it is, is just going to sap your, uh, your concentration and, and leave you. Um, so I, um, I would say the more you can just make a plan, I mean, just writing something, it, it is amazing how just writing something on a list can, you know, can free you up, like, you know, just, okay, I've taken care of it, the brain's going to stop nagging you, so. Oh, yes, yeah, sure. Uh, I'd like to ask you, what type of willpower do you use to overcome compassion fatigue? Hmm. <laughs> um, boy, that is a, that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, compassion fatigue, I suppose, is is more of an idi. I mean, it's an ideological sense. You know, that one realizes that it's an intellectual thing where you realize that. It's not actually helping people, I suppose, and you get and you keep getting. Um, and people with willpower do. I mean, they have more compassion, and and, and there are you know the, the way things um, um, do sap your energy. I mean, there are studies, for instance, that you know people in pain, people with chronic pain, it really affects their willpower because they're just constantly dealing with you know um, with that sensation, and it leaves them less able, you know, less self-control over their reactions and. Right, yeah. Um, I would say that, you know, I mean, to recognize that your willpower is limited, that you can't do everything, that you have to give yourself breaks, you have to, um, you know, set aside some limits, um, and that you can't expect to just be compassionate all day long, that you need to really, you know, realize that this is draining you, and to try and, I mean, it's like don't have meetings, you know, as I said, don't have back-to-back -back meetings all day. You just can't, you know, you're just too tired to do that. And I think compassion fatigue, you have to be realistic that I only have so much of this that I can, I can give. So...
if I wanted to um, succeed at a task that I'm trying to get done, which I don't want to do, but I know I need to do it, mm -hmm. I might do something else that's kind of important that I ignored too. Right. And I wondered how you, uh, how I um, need to deal with that. Thank well, you. Well, you know, you know uh, um, I often thought about writing a book called The Power of Positive Procrastination. Um, and there actually is a guy, we talk about him in the Willpower book, uh, there's a Stanford professor and he calls it, um, does he call it productive procrastination? He has a term, but, but, but he wrote a very funny essay about this and basically that that's how he gets these things done, is that, you know, that he procrastinates one task but does something else. And, um, and we quote in the book a very funny essay in the New Yorker by someone who says, how did I manage to build a bookcase and you know, um, answer a letter to a friend who'd been, that was sitting on my desk for two years and do all this stuff? Well, because I had a deadline to write an article. You know? so, and, and he said his rule was, I can do anything as long as it is not the task required of me at the moment. So I, mean, I think there's something, and I've, I have to say I've done it, like I'll, I'll, you know, when I have an article to write and I'm not sure what to do, maybe I'll do an expense account, which I hate doing. So, because it's less odious at that moment than trying to figure something out. So I think there's something to it. There is the danger though that it's this thing with, it's still, that unfinished task is still eating away at you and it's, so it's nagging. So I think it's better if you can do the first thing, but you know, I do think there's something if you're procrastinating by doing something else that has to be done. It's not, it's not a bad strategy, I think, so. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if there's evidence to suggest that these 10-minute naps are, you know, helpful for your willpower, restorative, etc. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it has been specifically studied, um, but it's definitely true that sleep makes a huge difference. And so I think in that sense, it really does it does help a lot. And getting enough sleep and getting enough food, you know, your your body really needs. It is this form of energy. And if your body gets, gets, gets hungry, gets tired, then it just doesn't have as much energy. So it's really there. And then I think that's a great strategy. So, right. There's someone back here too. Go ahead. Great. Um, so a purely anecdotal evidence, but I'm willing to claim that you could verify empirically mm -hmm. that one of the factors that determines how much willpower you have is whether or not you believe in free will. Um, so this is, of course, kind of a problem because I think people decreasingly think that free will is a thing. We talk about scientific determinism or social determinism, what have you. Um, so I guess as long as we're talking about the science of willpower and freedom, do you have sort of knowledge about free will, whether or not we should think it's a thing, whether or not that really matters? Uh, how does free will factor into uh, that? I have, to, uh, I, I have uh, uh, just finished determining the, uh, the answer to the free will question for all time. No, no um, actually there has just been a study, it's funny you ask that, a really interesting study that looked at conservative and liberal students. Um, and, um, and, and it looked at their self-control and, and, and their um, hypothesis, and they, and they used the, the question of free will. Um, because their hypothesis was that believing in free will would basically make people try harder and have more self-control because they believe more in that. Now the good news for um, people in this room is that the conservative students had better self-control than liberal students. Now they found when they manipulated things where they would have them read an essay 
about free will, and the essay would sometimes say free will is a myth, it's an illusion, or would say that it's real. They found that um, if you, how did it go? It, it, if you basically ratified the, the liberal students thought that there wasn't free will, it, um, that I think maybe somehow improved their self-control a little bit because it ratified their beliefs. There was, it was a complicated experiment, I'm not doing it justice, but it, it basically, it's what you say, that it did, they did find that people who believe in free will tend to have more self-control because they think it's, it's in my power to do this. And if you think that it's my environment, it's my family, it's the culture, then you know, that decreases the sense that I'm responsible for what I do. So, Rebecca? Um, I guess hiring someone to say it for you, that's, that's what people say. Um, no, but, uh, but the word decision comes from the same, is it Latin or Greek? We have, but it comes from the same root as uh, meaning to kill. And basically, the, and it's one of the things that's hard about decisions is you're killing an option. And we have some, the, the, uh, there's a really interesting study in the book about these judges um, on a parole board in Israel, and, and they would have these prisoners would come before them, and they'd have to decide whether to give them parole or not. And in the morning, um, they were much more likely to say yes, because in that case, the decision, you know, basically, um, it's a hard decision to let someone go. Whereas, um, as the day wore on, in the afternoon, the prisoner's chance of getting parole was so much less, because the judges were depleted. And they found little, it was really interesting because there were a couple spikes during the day when their depletion would be reversed. Right after a mid-morning snack and right after lunch, suddenly the, you had the prisoner's chances went up again. But, but basically, when you're depleted, it's, it's easier to duck the decision and keep the status quo, which is, in the prisoner's case, it's leave them in prison. You know, I haven't lost anything. And I think what you're saying is that when you're asked to do something, it's easier usually to say yes because you're not, you know, the other person's happy, you're not... Um, you're not cutting off an option in that sense, um, or at least you're between you and the other person you're not, but you're cutting off indirectly options for you because you don't have time to do everything. So um, I think trying to, and there's also the, uh, this issue of the planning fallacy that, that you always think that there's time to do it. And one of the big, you know, they're really interesting experiments. Um, I forgot, I wrote a column about this, about, about if you ask someone, would you do this for me next month, everyone says yes, because they think I'll have more time next month. And then, um, and then uh, in fact, it's called the oh damn phenomenon, because <laughs> next month comes along and you didn't really have any more time. But, but so we tend to, to um, overestimate how much free time and how little time it will take. And so I think trying to do that, you know, one way to set realistic goals for a project to make a realistic estimate of what you can do is to ask someone else um, uh, to do it. I mean, that is serious. Like asking someone else, how long do you think it will take me to do a, this paper or this article? Someone else will look at it much more realistically than you. Well, you know, the last time you did it, um, it took this long. And, and the other way is one of the advantages of, uh, I talked about the importance of monitoring your progress. One of the other advantages of that is that when you do that, you can look back and see the last time I did this project, you know, if it took me three days to do this presentation, then I'm not going to plan, oh, I'll just knock this off tomorrow morning. You know, so if you can look at your past things, and if you can see that, you know, before when I said I would do this, you said yes and yes and yes, it drove me crazy. I couldn't get it done. 
then it helps you maybe to be more realistic and just saying no. So. Um, so you mentioned earlier the efficacy of um, pre-commitment devices mm -hmm. in improving someone's willpower. Right. Um, so how would you, I guess, how would we respond to the claim that um, government nanny state policies are just another form of pre-commitment device and in fact government is just trying to help us have more willpower? Well, you're right. I mean, I mean, that's a good point and that is, and that is the argument for pre-commitment devices. I mean, I think, you know, people would argue that um, the smoking bans everywhere, are, you know, that they infringe on freedom, why can't a bar do that? But it probably did help some people quit smoking. Um, I guess one thing like with the war on drugs is that it, it, there are so many bad effects of these things when you have one blanket policy and somebody in the middle says, I've decided what's right for everyone in this society. Um, it's just there are so many unintended consequences that it's bad. I mean, I think, you know, AA and things like that are much better, pre, you know, pre-commitment devices and doing something yourself, doing something with a group of people. I mean, it, we, we've chapter in the book that there definitely is um, a social aspect of self-control and that when you're in a group, that's no one really knows why AA works or even how well it works, but it seems to work at least as well as all the professional programs they try. And one of the reasons is simply you're meeting with this group of people and you know there's this social pressure on you to not drink because you're going to have to go face these people next week and do that. And so social pressure can really help. You know, peer, you know, for good and evil, social pressure does help. But I think it's better if it's voluntary association rather than one rule from the top. Okay, two more questions. Go ahead. Being in a PhD in economics, I lived through a lot of the theories that you're talking about, specifically mm -hmm. like considering myself a robot and thinking that I should be studying for every second of 14 mm -hmm. hours a day. But then having to accept that that's impossible, I began to fear that uh, believing in willpower would become an anticipatory excuse to mm -hmm. slack off. So how do you propose combating that? Um, well, there is, and there has been a researcher who's been arguing that if people believe willpower is finite, it hurts them. And, um, and she's been publishing some stuff on this. Now, it, it is certainly true that, for instance, if you tell someone, and they, they did some experiments, that if you tell someone willpower is finite or you tell them there's an unlimited supply, that in, I think in that experiment they showed that people would, would keep working harder um, if they were told that the, the willpower is not finite. But I mean, you can get that same effect if you give people a drink and tell them it's caffeinated um, during an experiment, they will um, they'll work harder as if they got because they'll believe it was caffeinated and they'll do it. But the thing is, you can't do that indefinitely. It doesn't work forever. They eventually, you know, they need real caffeine to do it. And I think willpower really is limited. Um, I think you know, just thinking that that um, you can build it up over time, and that and that you know, by by trying to pr to push your limits and do it more, but just not, you know, realizing that you do need to take rest and you do need to be realistic and in, um, in how you plan to do it, and that you, you can't just pull an all-nighter and get something done very well. You need to plan things better so it's not um, it's not left to the last minute. So, we have one more, I guess. Then. The lecture was, was uh, stated as being the, the mm -hmm. science of liberty, mm -hmm. but you talked more about the science of willpower mm -hmm. or free will. Mm -hmm. So what's the relationship between liberty 
and willpower. Well, the idea that, um, and I touched on this briefly, but there was this belief in willpower that, that in the Middle Ages, people lived in villages and they were basically constrained largely by social forces, your family, your village, the church, the noble. And then as people started moving to cities, um, they were suddenly freed from all these traditional external cons you know, constraints. They were, they were living in anonymous cities. The power of religion had waned. There wasn't this one universal religion that everyone believed. It was really the word of God we all had to follow. And so that's why um, Victorians and, and you know, why the Founding Fathers, people in the Enlightenment, and especially Victorians really worried, could you have morality without religion? And this belief that people have to be able to control themselves rationally rather than relying on, you know, on an all-powerful church or an all-powerful government to do so. And, and I think that that's why they really, you know, Victorians were just this, this idea in, in building character. You know, Rudyard Kipling in his, in, his, in his poem, If, if you can just, you know, keep going when the only thing that's left in you is the will that says, hold on. Um, and then that belief was really lost in the 20th century. There were, um, in the book we sketch various reasons why th there was a decline in the power of the will. One, um, partly it was sort of a reaction to World War I, this idea that there'd been all these people doing their duty. Partly it was um, um, the, um, the, the belief in the will declined in most, in most places except, unfortunately, Nazi Germany. Um, and there was the triumph of the will that movie that certainly, and when you have, you know, Hitler doing PR for, you know, for the will, it's not very good PR. <laughs> so there was this basically, you know, belief that, the, the, and then there was B.F. Skinner, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. There were all these ideas that people really weren't, that free will didn't exist, that people were guided by all these irrational um, thoughts and that we couldn't really count on people to control themselves. We needed a state to guide people to, um, enforce really strict limits on what they do. And so I think, to me, it's been a great thing in the last 20 years that there's been this revolution where people are now realizing that individual self-control is the key to personal success and that it actually enables a society to, to thrive without this heavy-handed guidance from the top, that people can control themselves and treat each other well. So... Um, well, thank you very much for uh, your time. I've really enjoyed being here. Thank you.